Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the sixth day of May, 2023. I'm your host, Mark Collin. Yep, once again, it has been quite a week, and certainly when it comes to trying to make sense of it, maybe the best way, as is often the case, is to go back and follow the money. Well, or at least what now passes for money. It's not money anymore, as you know. It's just currency, and it's certainly not anything real or, for crying out loud, constitutional or even biblical, like silver, because it is, after all, a dishonest weight and measure. But there's a hell of a lot of it out there, isn't there? But one thing's for sure, and this is becoming increasingly obvious, that doesn't mean that the banking system that claims to have so much of it is even remotely solvent. So we'll start our look back at the week and the economic meltdown, still in progress, with some bookends. Monday first, then some Friday news to cap it all off. And really, folks, who didn't see this coming? First Republic has joined the ranks of those that have bitten the big one and bought the farm. Said a whole bunch of different headlines Monday morning, but the Daily Mail is kind of typical. J.P. Morgan has taken control of First Republic's $92 billion of remaining deposits, but not their $100 billion of corporate debt or preferred stock after, ahem, buying the bank. This after California's Department of Financial Protection, how's that for a funny name, and innovation, said it closed the San Francisco-based bank and agreed on a deal to sell its assets after it failed to come up with a workable rescue plan. The DFPI has appointed the FDIC as a receiver and said it accepted a bid from J.P. Morgan Chase Bank to assume all deposits. They'll take on the majority of the assets and other liabilities, but won't assume control of their preferred stock or corporate debt. CNBC helpfully tells us it's rising interest rates. Thank you, Fed, at the heart of the problem. First Republic, they say, is a regional bank that's focused on high net worth individuals and businesses, including offering mortgages at low interest rates to those customers. And those mortgages, as well as other long-term assets on the bank's balance sheet, have now fallen in market value since the Fed began hiking rates last year, making investors worried, and rightfully so, that the bank would have to book a sizable loss if they actually had to mark those things to market or sell them to raise cash. And this is not only the second largest bank failure in American history, but as a follow-up piece from the Daily Mail also notes, it's now three American banks that have failed so far in this relatively young year, and that's bigger than the 25 that collapsed during all of 2008, says data. However, experts say, stay calm. These are not the droids you're looking for, noting that consumers don't need to worry their pretty little heads, at this stage at least, on account of differences between today's issues and 2008. No, this is not at all like that one. Let's be honest, folks, this has been festering for all of the years in between, and it's a hell of a lot worse, and the amount of failed debt in the system is so much bigger than 2008 that they've had to add zeros to the money supply, not to mention the total notional value of worldwide derivatives up in the quadrillions or more at this point. Back to the Daily Mail, the three banks held a combined total of over a half trillion dollars in assets, which, according to the New York Times, and adjusted for inflation, what do you bet they use the official figures and it's not right, is still more than the $526 billion held by all banks that collapsed in 2008 at what was then called the peak of the financial crisis. In other words, they managed to kick the can down the road then, and yeah, it's still right there in the middle of the road. But my, how it's grown. On Friday, say most of the stories, the stock of First Republic Bank tanked by an additional 43%. That's on top of the collapse earlier in the year, bringing it to a total of 97%. And hey, folks, it took the almighty fiat dollar almost a century to destroy that much value. 
From there, left-leaning Bloomberg tells us that even if more banks were to fail, which is a matter of debate, the repercussions won't be felt equally across the economy. Here they quote Goldman Sachs, whose analyst says credit will start crunching, but not for everyone. And listen to the slant here. Owing to their greater financial flexibility, large and highly rated firms, like us, can adapt to tighter bank lending standards, unquote, meaning the biggest banks, says Bloomberg, are fixing to get bigger, and smaller borrowers who rely on those smaller institutions will find it much more expensive to get access to money. Axios helpfully adds this. The big banksters won't only profit from taking over the assets of those that are failing. They'll also get money from Big Brother government itself, billions and billions of bucks. And Axios puts it this way. While bank rescues are often seen as government bailouts, failures are seen as being even more punitive. But in reality, the government invariably ends up being extremely generous to the banking sector whenever there's a failure. Because when a bank fails and is sold by the FDIC in a fire sale, the government is generally forced to throw in billions of fees out bucks worth of sweeteners. They'll probably end up being worth $20 billion or so to whichever acquirer, and now we know it's J.P. Morgan, will end up with the bank's operations. But that's not all. Those that help, that consortium of 11 banks that shipped in $30 billion to at least kick the can down the road a bit, all of which is theoretically uninsured by the FDIC, will probably end up with a systemic rate exception, and all of it will be insured anyway. And those billions will flow from government in the form of the FBI, in the form of the FDIC to America's biggest banks. You know the names, and they're going to get bigger. In summary, they say getting a new mortgage or a car loan will cost far more for the average peon, which leads to even more profit for the banks. And as well, it'll get more difficult to get those loans in the first place, limiting their options. From there, let's go on and talk other signs of the economic times, like this one, also from Zero Hedge. Chipotle's and Domino's are among those whose customers have begun to cut back on delivery orders. Who could have thought it? Mounting evidence shows consumers are dialing back on fast food spending as they grapple with two years of negative real wages, maxed out credit cards, and depleted personal savings. Last week, McDonald's CEO noted that customers were starting to resist higher burger prices. Now it's Chipotle Mexican Grill and Domino's Pizza that have reported their customers are ditching delivery services due to high fees and opting instead to carry out in order to save on costs, according to Bloomberg. Said VP of Insights Victor Fernandez for Black Box, a restaurant data provider, many consumers have begun to watch their spending more closely. And as Chief Financial Officer for Chipotle, Jack Hartung noted, as consumers come under financial pressure, ordering delivery seems to be one of the first services they cut. Another one via Zero Hedge and the Political Calculation blog begins with a question. What month will the NBER, or the National Bureau of Economic Research, finally get around someday to saying... Mark the actual beginning of the next recession in the United States. And yep, they're notoriously slow. It begins in identifying when the business cycle in the U.S. either peaks before going into recession or troughs when coming out of one, sometimes lagging these events by many months. That's because they take a number of data series into consideration and they wait until many go through revisions, and that takes months more, before determining if the national economy has truly changed direction. And let's not forget, folks, there are big brother agencies that have a vested interest in lying about some of those statistics as well. But because they're so slow, analysts have tried to build models to try to predict the timing of when the country's business cycle changes, when evidence is building that it has, long before the NBR gets around to making it ahem, official. Things like the U.S. Treasury yield curve and when it inverts. For that data... 
the red light starts flashing when the yield of the three-month treasuries drop below the yield on 10-year treasuries. A clear signal that the yield has, in fact, inverted. And as of the close of trading on 27 April 2023, late last week, a forecasting model based on that data anticipates a 67% probability that the period between now and the end of April 2024 will contain the month that the NBR will someday say or admit marked the beginning of a national recession in the U.S. By which time, your host can't help but think, it just might have been obvious to everybody for quite a while. Which takes us to the Friday bookend, and another miracle, who could have thought it, <laughs> from the Obama-Biden regime. I like the Zero Hedge summary of this one. Ignore the noise, they say, despite today's laughable 13th consecutive beat of real economists, or at least the ones that play them on TV and their expectations 13 times in a row, yeah. The job market has added another near record 378,000, and I'm going to put one word in here, fake jobs. Why, says why, notes Tyler Durden, that number's almost as credible as Biden's 81 million voters. And, <laughs> and I can't help but think there's a whole lot of overlap in those numbers, too. Fake people and fake votes can have just as many fake jobs as they want, or as somebody makes up for them. What? Oh, say it isn't so. Are we implying that people who would lie about vote counts and switch the columns would lie about jobs data, too? Oh, just like they lie about inflation data? Well, says Zero Hedge, consider this. The birth-death model, which is the statistical ruse that they use to come up with these bogus numbers, the birth-death model added a huge 378,000 jobs to April's payrolls, the second biggest monthly increase on record. Only last October's bogus numbers were higher. And get this, the birth-death model has added 1.84 million jobs since just last March, or a whopping 43% of all payrolls added during the entire period. Are you starting to smell a rat or maybe fake jobs? This means, notes Zero Hedge, that almost half of all so-called job gains in the past year are from an Excel spreadsheet, which assumes that 1.84 million new jobs were created from new businesses. Trouble is, they probably don't exist, just like those voters that clearly don't exist, or maybe they're dead and so forth. And all of this, notes the piece, has come during a period when the employer survey response rate to the Bureau of Lying Statistics, which compiles actual payrolls data, has collapsed. In other words, there's a divergence here. And it's also noteworthy, says Tyler Durden, that there continues to be a significant divergence between household employment, which counts actual employees, or claims to anyway, and the payroll survey, which counts jobs. Over 1.2 million more jobs have been created than new employees since March last year. And um, arguably, it's not a vote of confidence in the jobs market if a rising number of people, if they exist at all, seem to feel they need more than one position or job to pay their way. Bloomberg's Simon White adds a bit more, writing that faster than expected deterioration in employment would lead the market to price in more cuts sooner. And month-to-month data points and revisions can often obscure, he says, a bigger picture. In the case of the labor market, that is that payrolls growth is weakening, especially after revisions, and what with April expected to be revised next month. It's very likely to keep doing so, and at a faster rate. And all of this, he says, can be directly linked to the banking turmoil. There's a very clear and intuitive leading relationship between banks' lending standards and payrolls. The magnitude of the recent tightening in credit from banks points to payrolls. Payroll's annual growth contracting in the next few months. 
And your host can't help but notice something else there, too. There's an implicit assumption that uh, things more or less continue along the path that they've been on, but not dramatically different. In other words, that assumes the wheels don't come completely off the wagon. And as we've seen, that's an increasingly riskier bet. From there, another one of those you've-got-to-be-kidding stories that at least is a sign of the times, and I saw it in several places, the Daily Mail, the New York Post, and uh, probably the best summary from the Gateway Pundit. I'm sure China is terrified, says the latter, but the New York Post is a bit more subdued. U.S. Navy, it says, hires active-duty drag queen, you heard that right, to be the face of recruitment drive. Yeah, the face of falling enlistment numbers. This will fix it, right? Yeoman Second Class Joshua Kelly, who identifies as non-binary and whose stage name is Harpy Daniels, was appointed as the first of five Navy digital ambassadors in a pilot program that ran from October to March. And he, she, it, or is it they, shared their journey, it says, on TikTok and Instagram, where they described how they began performing on board and became an advocate for people who were, quote, oppressed for years in the service. But now they are happy to be able to share their drag experience. And don't you feel safer already, folks, knowing that it's no longer this man's Navy that anybody cares to talk about? Or even a Navy that seems to know the difference between real men and real women? Or for that matter, I guess you could argue what the hell they're fighting for anymore. Or No, I guess that's politically incorrect to even say, too, because I don't think they fight anymore, do they? At least not for the country. Remember, they force them to take the poison poke in order to keep doing whatever the hell it is they've been doing anyway. And now they're actually worried about declining enlistment. Who could have thought it? And this is the obvious solution. Writes the New York Post, the U.S. Navy invited an active duty drag queen to be the digital ambassador as part of a recent drive to, get this, and quote, attract the most talented and diverse workforce, unquote. Oh yeah, and combat plunging recruitment. Hey folks, I got a better idea. Don't know why they didn't think of this. Instead, join the Navy. Get a free six-pack of Bud Light. The Gateway Pundit story adds one interesting factoid to this one. He, she, it, they has over 1.3 million likes on the communist Chinese-operated TikTok platform, according to Fox News. And really, why wouldn't they? That was followed up the very next day with a bit of practically good news about Navy SEAL Robert O'Neill, who took part in the mission, at least so we're told, to kill Osama bin Laden, or one of his many doubles. But he is still outraged over the once honorable U.S. Navy's use of a drag queen for a recruitment program. Quote, I can't believe I fought for this bullshit, says the headline about a decorated combat veteran who served for eight years on SEAL Team 6. I'm done, he said. China is going to destroy us. Oh, and while we're at it, folks, what do you bet that the kind of service members that this recruitment ad is going to pick up aren't exactly going to be of the same kind of caliber as those who came before and fought for a country that arguably may no longer even exist, but one thing's for sure, that no longer cares about the real God-given and once constitutionally protected rights that better people fought and died for for over two centuries prior to the latest abominations. But wait a minute, speaking of unbelievable BS, we've also got this, courtesy of the Gateway Pundit. The Biden regime, remember when they said they weren't really seeking to ban gas stoves? That was just a conspiracy theory. And oh yeah, they don't want to take your guns either. That's just something that, well, if you've been reading what they talk about wanting to do, you already knew. Turns out, their lips were moving. They were lying again. 
But if you really want to go to the horse's mouth, or better still, the other end, you have to look at New York Senator Chucky Schumer, who went out of his way, says Margaret Flavin's piece for TGP, to chasten those concerned, saying, nobody has taken away your gas stove, unquote. Yeah, nobody's taken away your guns either, said the walking, talking Chucky doll. But he wasn't done when it comes to liars. This guy's at the top of the dung heap, quote, Shameless and desperate MAGA Republicans are showing us they will cook up any distraction to divert from real issues the American people want solved. <laughs> ah, good grief. Well, it turns out, to arguably nobody's surprise, they were lying again. And TGB sets it up by noting that earlier this year, the so-called Consumer Product Safety Commission, how's that for a laugher, said that gas-powered stoves, no, not the Zyklon B injections or anything else that Big Brother wants to do to you, whether you know it or not, they are the hidden health hazard. And although Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm mocked the millions of Americans concerned about Big Brother's transparent plans to put restrictions on gas stoves, she admitted the Biden regime does want to ban some of them. Well, now the truth is out, and New York State, it says, is banning the use of natural gas for both heating and cooking in a whole lot of new buildings. According to the New York Times, these provisions will require new buildings to, quote, be constructed with only electric hookups for appliances and utilities beginning in 2025. The law will go into effect for buildings with fewer than seven stories beginning in 2026, and they will kick in for taller buildings by 2029. The Reuters coverage says that both the Democrat-led Assembly and Senate on Tuesday approved the provisions included in the state's $229 billion budget, also with the approval of the communist governor, Kathy Hochul. And get this. The story claims the move in New York comes amid fierce public debate. Well, not among people with half a brain. The only people debating this are those that don't know anything about either energy, economics, or basic engineering. In the United States, this fierce public debate over the health and environmental impacts of the cooking appliances that burn fossil fuel and over the broader role, as if it actually existed, of natural gas in climate change. But I guess you got to ask it, folks. Why would you expect idiots who can't tell an any from an Audi and want to dumb down and emasculate school kids to know anything about other kinds of simple science either? But idiocy aside, it says dozens of cities around the United States have adopted or are considering idiotic policies. Is it clear, folks, here what the intent is that ban or discourage natural gas in new buildings to address non-existent, I put that word in there, public health and climate concerns? But at least the story says they've been met with strong resistance from gas industry groups and the restaurant and appliance lobby. You know what they don't say in here? Again, people that have any understanding of mathematics, engineering, or economics. In other words, people who aren't anxious to starve or freeze to death, who argue that not only are the concerns overblown, I'll say it, they're downright asinine and beyond idiotic. These are the kind of people who virtue signal over their wonderful electric car and then have to wait for it to be recharged by a diesel generator at the roadside somewhere. They don't even know where milk comes from. Why would you think they'd know where electricity does? So, yeah... They want to ban them. Meanwhile, of course, the regulations will drive the price of natural gas up for everybody. And, of course, the intent, lots more people will suffer. If they get their way, folks, by 2029, there probably won't be any electricity for those other appliances to be run on anyway. From there, we'll segue a bit from the destruction of real science to the destruction of the rule of law. 
This one again comes from the Gateway Pundit and 100% Fed Up, which reports that the People's Republic, once known as the state of Michigan, is currently investigating Aktung, a horse farm, after its owner dared to say no to a communist Chinese company that wanted to build an EV battery component plant there and was rebuffed. The property owner even dared to hold a rally against that planned plant to be built by Goshen, a subsidiary of Chinese company Guazon High Tech Co. And uh, maybe you can guess who else. Because it has ties to what else? Not just the Biden Fuhrer, of course, but the CCP. In October 2022, Gretchen Wittmer, who lost a massive EV plant expansion opportunity for Michigan-based Ford Motor Company, bragged that the CCP-tied company Goshen would be moving to Michigan and building a battery plant funded by Michigan taxpayers to the tune of just under a billion bucks. The public-private partnership was, of course, approved by the fascists in the state house. There are all kinds of negative economic and environmental impacts. But the problem is, Lori Brock, the owner of Majestic Frisian's Horse Farm in Big Rapids, expressed concern over the environmental impacts that the battery plant would have and the fact that it would be built near her 150-acre horse farm, which has 20 horses, and she refused to sell her land to Goshen, then held an anti-Goshen rally on her farm. And would you believe it, folks? She needs punishing. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Just days later, the Agriculture und Rural Development Office, a government organization under the authority of, as TGP puts it, Dirty Democrat A.G. Dana Nessel's office, received a right-to-farm complaint alleging there was manure runoff from Brock's farm. And yes, the farm owner says she's never had any issues before. She thinks this complaint is just harassment because, quote, for 20 horses on 150 acres, there's no way I'm in violation of anything. My farm is pristine. I'm not worried one bit because we're not doing anything to endanger anything. Well, except, of course, the Communist Chinese party and their puppets in Michigan. She said she wants to teach her daughters that you don't give in to bullies. Oh, and one more quick story about the destruction of the rule of law in Michigan while we're at it. It's bad enough, says another piece from the Gateway Pundit, this time courtesy of Patty McMurray, that radical far-left uh, communists masquerading as Democrats in Michigan are now in control of the legislature there for the first time in 40 years. And uh, you can thank the election rigging for that, some of us would suspect. But now it says the rhinos on the alleged other side of the aisle are actually helping them pass their radical legislation. Minority Rhino Speaker for the House, Matt Hall of Kalamazoo, has made it quite clear he's willing to make cowardly backroom deals with the left-wing communists running the legislature. He failed to investigate election fraud as chairman of the Oversight Committee when they had the majority back in 2020, preferring to do nothing and refusing to even look into subpoenaed returns. <laughs> oh, good grief. But now, basically, says the story, he's caved to the rest of their agenda. And the rest of the article really just tells the story we've long gotten used to. What happens when both wings of the same evil bird of prey, and this time, of course, it's at the state level, continue to flap in unison. Here's another shocker. A New York Supreme Court judge has dismissed President Donald Trump's lawsuit against the New York Times and ordered Aktung that he will pay all attorney's fees, legal expenses, and associated costs. What a disgrace, says TGP, says the New York Times. Oh, yippee. Evidently, folks, they're all for freedom of the press and honest news gathering except when it has to do with them. Oh, yeah, and one more wooden stake in what's left of the First Amendment. 
the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, not if it's a fascist state. Four out of five members of the Proud Boys, who accepted the invitation to walk through the open doors at the Capitol on January 6th, were found guilty on Thursday of seditious conspiracy. Unt conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Yeah, the rubber stamping of a rigged election. Oh, and notice, folks, you still haven't seen any more video from that day, have you? And given what they did to Tucker, have you figured out yet that, at least while it still matters, you ain't gonna? From Dr. Peter McCulloch, former insider turned outspoken critic of the Cyclone B mandates und injections, who's discovered an alarming scientific study coming from none other than Chinese researchers, Quang Zhang et al., entitled, Quote, an oral vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, RBD, mRNA, bovine milk-derived exosomes induces a naturalizing antibody response in vivo. What's it mean in English? Well, as someone who's treated myocarditis patients on the very front lines, Dr. McCulloch's warnings should be listened to carefully, says TGP's coverage, because, quote, children could be targeted with easily administered oral vaccine dosing or potentially get mRNA through milk at places like school lunches or evidently anywhere else that kids are vulnerable to being destroyed by adults who would just as soon kill them or cut off their genitalia as allow them to grow up or be educated anyway. And we'll be right back after this. call and welcome back to the second segment and it's not news to say the big lies continued this week but it's kind of interesting how thin some of the veneer is getting for example there's this story that i thought was at least funny if not downright disgusting comes courtesy of christina layla and the gateway pundit about none other than the chief spokesliar for the senile biden pure and it's arguably a good match kareen jean pierre has made another idiotic in your face claim which certainly is a bald-faced lie but this time folks it just may have have a bit of the Clintonian element of truth in it. Listen carefully. White House Press Secretary KJP on Monday absurdly claimed that illegal immigration is down 90% because of the Biden Fuhrer's policies. And among other things, Title 42, a Trump-era program forcing migrants that are claiming to seek asylum to remain in Mexico, expires in a week or so. And yep, no doubt about it, illegal immigration is way, way out of control. At least 5 million illegals have crossed the border since the rigged election was shoved down American throats. And here's the quote from the chief spokesliar. When it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down by more than 90%, and that's because of the actions that this president has taken, unquote. Says TGP, that may be the biggest single lie yet, and your host has to say, no, no, I disagree. They've just changed the meaning of the word illegal immigrant. There's actually a lot of truth in that, folks, if you understand it from the truly Clintonian perspective. It all depends on what the meaning of the word illegal is. All you got to do is just change the definition and understand, since there is no illegal immigration anymore, 
anybody that comes in gets to stay. Why, you could arguably say, hey, illegal immigration is down 100% because it simply doesn't exist. These are just invaders coming across to do what invaders always end up doing. From there, we move on to another lie. You can guess what's going to come of this one. First, the coverage from the Daily Mail. GOP senators, it says, have accused the so-called Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, of, guess what, lying to Congress about Hunter Biden, emails, and the Burisma business dealings, or were they just plain graft corruption and outright bribery? Emails show that Blinken and his wife attempted to influence U.S. government officials on behalf of Ukrainian gas firm Burisma. They bought and paid for the crackhead son, and now they and the other communists pretty much own what's left of the American government. GOP Senators Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley, says the piece, are accusing Biden Secretary of State Antony Blinken of providing false testimony. How's that for an understatement? To Congress, related to the crackhead whoremonger frontman for the big guy. In a letter Monday, it says, to Blinken, obtained by the Daily Mail, the senators wrote that the false statements occurred when he sat for a transcribed interview in December 2020 before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee while still working for the Biden campaign and gunning for the Secretary of State job. Based on what's now become available, Blinken's 2020 statement to Congress was a bald-faced lie. Or as Senator Johnson put it, a bold-faced lie. Here he is talking to Maria Bartiromo. Uh, Anthony Blinken finally did come in and sit down for a voluntary transcribed interview in December of 2020 because he wanted to be Secretary of State. And now because of uh, more information that's come out, we know that he lied bold-faced to Congress about never emailing Hunter Biden. My guess is he told a bunch of other lies that uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring him and his wife back in, tell them to preserve their records. Uh, you cannot trust Joe Biden. You cannot trust Hunter Biden. You can't trust the Biden family. You can't trust so many of the people that uh, they have surrounded themselves with. He called them, and I would say appropriately, made men, and then asked this question. What do you do when you have, in effect, co-conspirators of the Biden family inside the agencies, inside our intelligence agencies, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and you have uh, the political party, the Democrats, who couldn't care less, have no interest whatsoever in the corruption that is being uncovered bit by bit as we pull back the, uh, the layers of the onion here. Without question, he said, he lied under oath. Uh, he said he did not email Hunter Biden, and now we have those emails. We also know that his wife, using her private email address when she was an uh, employee of the State Department, was basically a conduit between her husband and Hunter Biden as well. There seem to be a lot of conduits in the swamp. Item, here's another big lie, and yeah, we knew it anyway, but that doesn't make it any less horrific. Pfizer's latest tranche of documents, which the FDA sought in a court to keep hidden for 75 years from Americans, confirms that, in fact, the evil company knew that women who had been exposed to the vaccine, and interestingly, that doesn't even require having the poison poke injected directly, could have been injected through a vagina, for example, by a vaccinated sexual partner, were sustaining spontaneous abortions and miscarriages. As Dr. Naomi Wolf writes, Pfizer knew that exposure, as they defined it, including sexual intercourse, as well as skin contact and inhalation, resulted in 19% of the babies identified in the first three months of the study having sustained adverse events. And as Naomi Wolf points out, they didn't even call these spontaneous abortions. They called them missed abortions. And why would you use a phrase like that in internal documents unless there was another agenda here? You knew this, too. Babies who nursed from injected moms had a whole plethora of adverse events. 
And what's more, they even knew it was harming multiple aspects of the reproductive process in women. That's the real kind, folks, as opposed to the Bud Light kind. This next story, folks, is one that I actually spent some time debating, not only whether to do it, but if I did, how. Because I'll admit right up front, it's fairly complicated, and you'll have to pay attention in order to follow all the connections here. But it comes from Tom Luongo, via LouRockwell.com. It's also up on his website, Gold, Goats, and Guns, and that's a great title, too. I really like Tom's work, and there's no doubt about it. It's very important, and he makes some incredibly amazing and, yep, downright fundamental points. But another feature that I like about his work is that he's not afraid to tell you exactly how you can tell how it's turning out, whether he's right or wrong, or at least which way the coin's going to get flipped. The article's entitled, Tucker, BlackRock, and the SIFI Two-Step. And he begins by noting that the big news this week was the unceremonious firing of Tucker Carlson from now undeniably at this point faux news. And as you've no doubt noted, there's no shortage of explanations for why it might have happened. And there's probably a nugget of truth in most of them. But what this did, says Luongo, was underscore just how much real power Tucker amassed during his time in the prime time slot, anchoring Fox's entire evening. And the corollary is, this is a serious needle scratch, he says, because something has changed behind the scenes dramatically. Within an hour, Don Lemon, no loss there, was dumped by the criminally negligent network. Susan Rice left the Biden regime that morning. Nate Silver was ousted from ABC News. And the usual dump and spin and so forth has followed. Nuts and sluts, he says, is a time-tested method of invalidating a public figure. Beauty is, it doesn't even have to be true. It just has to play, even if only for a little while. But while all the court politics of this might be interesting, they feel a bit now like discussing 9-11 or the Kennedy assassination. Does it matter who was behind the scenes? Why Carlson was ousted? Couldn't we see this coming? The further he went off the reservation? In fact, says Tom Luongo, I was kind of amazed that he was still on the air after all this time. And on that score, folks, he's not alone. But what this really feels like, he says, and I think this is part of the main point, folks, and as he points out, it's bigger than Tucker Carlson, is an attempt to completely change the direction of information flow as we arguably get ready for the next big PSYOP, which he suggests, and I guess among other things, is the, quote, remaking of the first fungal president into the next garden variety wartime president. Which, leaving aside the obvious question of whether the word president even belongs in the same sentence with the senile Biden Fuhrer, is important, suggests Tom Luongo, because you've heard it, you're going to hear it again, wartime presidents don't lose elections, whether they're rigged or not. Statistics, which are simply chum for people who feed their confirmation biases and prevent any coming together of the center of the electorate to say what should be obvious by now. We've had enough. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And yeah, no more. Which, he notes, is Tucker's real crime, if any of us are being even remotely honest with ourselves. And that just might be the least interesting part of the whole story. Because what's missing here is what he is going to go to next. The entire BlackRock angle. Huh? And here includes a tweet from somebody I've never heard of, which is kind of eye-catching, certainly interesting, and uh, yeah, there's a twist, too. BlackRock, it says, owns 59 million shares of Dominion. BlackRock owns 45.7 million shares of Fox. BlackRock sued itself and fired Tucker Carlson as part of that lawsuit. Have you figured it out yet? Well, continues the tweet from independent fact-checkers, and hey, doesn't that inspire trust? This is false, and uh, have we ever heard that before? Well, writes Luongo, is it true? 
How are you going to know? And besides, it doesn't matter because all of this said, there's a BlackRock angle to this story, but it isn't what people were led to believe for a couple of years. And that, folks, is why I'm doing the piece. Says Tom Luongo, BlackRock increased their ownership in Fox just before these events, which is symptomatic of BlackRock's use of proxy to get what they want. Larry Fink, the CEO, is notorious for his antics in forcing heads of state and CEOs to do his bidding, while hiding behind the smokescreen of, I'm just a guy investing your hard-earned capital on your behalf for the good of humanity. Which is, he notes, some primetime grade double-A bullshit. Because BlackRock is Davos's main arm-twisting subsidiary in the C-suites of the S&P 500, as well as the Euro Stocks 50. And here he gives the European link, but you'll have to translate it from German. And maybe the guy ought to just change his first name to Don, but there are some ethnic issues with this outside of Queens. Still, though, he says, as I've discussed in previous private blog posts for my patrons, as well as public interviews, BlackRock bet the farm on the Obama-Biden regime getting rid of Jerome Powell. They went all in on their CARES Act power to access the Fed's discount window to procure zero-cost seed capital to buy U.S. stocks and, by extension, real estate and just about everything else. He provides a graph here to make that point. And then notes that the company's growth was turbocharged during the COVID-19 pandemic, but by then it was already growing at more than a trillion bucks annually already. Its assets under management fell in 2022 because the value of the underlying assets fell as Powell put the interest rate screws on a lot of BlackRock's investments. The headlines have been full of governors like Florida's Ron DeSantis going on an anti-BlackRock, anti-ESG, and anti-woke tirade. No doubt about it. That, at least, is a good thing. And all of that has helped to see some outflow from BlackRock's funds. But still, it doesn't do a whole lot in the face of $10 trillion in assets under management, or AUM, where a few billion is literally nothing but a rounding error. No, he says, here's the big deal. The far bigger effect came from the Fed's fund rate going from 0% to 5% in a year. Now, here's where Luongo shifts it into gear. In the late stages of ZERP, he said, zero interest rate policy, for years we saw really strong moves in the equity markets, especially coming out of the COVID pandemic as the so-called CARES Act money made its way into the economy. And as a result, normie fintwit, as he calls it, in other words, people drinking the Kool-Aid, they're always going on about the Fed subsidizing the wealth effect as their main argument for why Powell is just, quote, one more meeting away from eventually pivoting away from its higher rates for longer shtick. And note that the so-called wealth effect expands not only BlackRock's AUM, but also its political pull in the boardroom. There's both coincidence and causality, in his opinion, he says, between things like Woca-Cola and all these idiotic, well, at least uh, they think they know where the bread is, buttered corporate entities genuflecting to every sicko with a gender fetish and the rise in BlackRock's AUM. So maybe it's no wonder why the standard fintwit commentary on the Fed is that QE and ZERP goose equity prices, which arguably they do, but also that's what the Fed wants to do all the time. And that, he says, is the part I disagree with. And he says, I've been steadfast in my assessment as to why for nearly two years. Powell, he writes, was trapped by both COVID and the CARES Act to go along with extending this madness for another two years. And in the process, he handed the guy he calls Don Finkleosi the keys to the whole rotten candy store to ensure that what we're seeing today, maximal brand destruction, uh, gee, does Bud Light come to mind? That defies market logic has gotten ramped up to 11. Buying a huge stake in Fox is just one more brick in the new media stonewall 
in preparation for the upcoming war. All they had to do to seal the deal was convince everyone the global economy was still suffering because of booga, 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 COVID, and that we needed more, more, more spending at the zero bound to reflate the economy. Powell, though, was supposed to be deposed and Lael Brainerd installed to ensure continuity of policy, with them having then moved Janet Yellen back into a position of power as Treasury Secretary under the Biden Fuhrer. That has failed, says Luongo. Brainerd is out at the Fed. She's prepping to replace Yellen in Biden's second term. So as the Biden-Harris soft launch of their re-election or re-infraudulating campaign was so well-timed with Carlson's ouster from Fox, and uh, the warning shots have been now fired at every major media outlet to toe the line like has never been seen before. So let's now, he says, talk about what's really going on with BlackRock in light of this failure to get rid of and replace Powell. Which brings us to that term I mentioned right up front in the title, sci-fi. And no, it's not alien spaceships and robots. It's systemically important financial institutions. And for years now, writes Tom Luongo, Janet Yellen and Elizabeth Warren have brought up the idea of expanding the definition of sci-fi to non-bank entities. Like, oh, hey, here's a surprise, BlackRock. BlackRock, though, has argued for years it can't be a systemically important financial institution because, quote, the British commissioner who took over from Barnier, Jonathan Hill, wanted the commission to work hand in hand with the financiers. And every time a debate or a hearing was organized, BlackRock's people were there, recalls Daniela Gabor. Then I realized it was no longer the banks that had the power, but the asset managers. We're often told that a manager is there to invest our money for our old age, but it's much more than that, she says. In In my opinion, BlackRock reflects, and listen to this, the renunciation of the welfare state. Is this Cloward Piven at work? Hmm. Anyway, she says this rise in power goes hand in hand with ongoing structural changes. Changes in finance, but also in the nature of the social contract that unites the citizen and the state. Huh. I can smell a great reset in here somewhere. Daniela Gabor explains that the European Central Bank, which commissions BlackRock to audit banks, has no power over the company. Quote, BlackRock's argument is simple. We do not do leverage. We do not act like banks. So we do not need to be regulated as a systemic institution. In fact, BlackRock, says Tom Luongo, slips under all the radar. They can be regulated for reasons known as microprudential to protect their customers, but not as a financial institution tasked with ensuring overall financial stability, she continues. And this conversation, notes Tom, has been going on at least since 2019. It resurfaced again this week as Janet Yellen brought it up. Now, why would she do that if, he says, as I've strenuously argued, she's Davos through and through? After all, wouldn't she continue arguing for the opposite per BlackRock and Don Finkleosi's instructions? I mean, who's calling the shots? Who's pulling the strings here, right? It all goes back, he says, to what I've been saying about BlackRock for over a year now. All of that AUM, asset under management, rests on a very slim pile of actual shareholder equity. Just $38.2 billion, to be precise. 
Now, here, folks, comes some inside baseball. As longtime patrons know, writes Tom Luongo, when I do a balance sheet analysis of a company, I strip out some things like goodwill and intangible assets from the asset side of the balance sheet because those are simply piles of so-called value left over from all kinds of previous stuff that may or may not have any real value. So when you do that, it leaves Fink with less than $5 billion in shareholder equity. And even if you don't accept that, he notes, there's this $55 billion so-called other liabilities, which may in fact be derivative exposure that the company can play very fast and loose with, given what's happened in the past. Bottom line, these are some pretty big black boxes. So he says, here's the question, and that's one no one really ever asks. Does BlackRock actually have any equity today, or is this just all a great big psyop based on them voting our proxy for us? And when we look at the stock price, and here comes another chart you can't see, i got to wonder if Wall Street isn't at least starting to think about asking that question. And because you can't see the charts, and uh, maybe because it's a little bit deep anyway, I'm going to skip over the stock analysis. But, he says, if it turns out BlackRock really is in real trouble because of falling asset prices, ESG backlash, rising interest rates, and failing and falling cash flow, then that would necessitate a change in the rules if it ever wanted to be bailed out. Remember, last year when the UK pension crisis developed, which took out Prime Minister Liz Truss and forced the Bank of England to intervene, the one holding the bag on the falling assets was none other than BlackRock. It had to do with CLOs, or collateralized loan obligations. So now, he says, is BlackRock, which was built on the same premise as Silicon Valley Bank, using non-balance sheet activity to resist being regulated as a sci-fi? Now staring at a crisis if yields keep rising? Who's protected by the big inversion of the U.S. yield curve we keep staring at? Who swoops in? Isn't it amazing that now Yellen swoops in to demand BlackRock should be a sci-fi once the FUD surrounding it has reached a fever pitch? Who's everyone afraid of now? BlackRock. Why? Because they own the world. But why aren't they regulated like the big banksters? Well, because they sit at the high table. Who gets screwed if they go tits up? The little guy. Whose fault will it be if BlackRock goes tits up? The Fed. You can hear Elizabeth Warren, he says, setting the political stage for all this right now. We have to protect U.S. workers from the evil Wall Street fat cats. So we'll bring them under the auspice of increased government regulation by labeling them as sci-fi. Who sits on the Financial Services Oversight Council? Who will make this decision? Then we have Jim Rickards and uh, his ICE-9 scenario. He includes the link. And, of course, you know that uh, Jim is another guy with a good head on his shoulders. But all of this boils down to the following. In short, BlackRock, as a sci-fi, would become a protector of the Treasury Department. And it circumvents any pending bankruptcy. And since BlackRock is just a pile of AUM on top of a relatively small balance sheet, it could be carved up pretty easily. Its book of business can be bought by the rest of Wall Street licking their lips at the thought of all those assets under management and consulting fees that generate the lion's shares of the company's cash flow. So now, does BlackRock suddenly want to be regulated as a sci-fi after having built itself into the monster it is by evading that very designation? And here, folks, is where the questions and the uh, implied answers really flow. You can see the game here, writes Tom Luongo. Janet Yellen can force her own pal to bail them out when their balance sheet implodes for real, holding the holes in the pension funds hostage as blackmail. 
Why would they do that? Why would Fink do this? Well, if you want to nationalize the U.S. pension system, hmm, there's a concept. If we're going to be communist anyway, why not, right? And in the old U.S. dollar and the entire system, then you could do that during a major crisis. How did they tie Powell's hands during COVID? The CARES Act. How will they tie Powell's hands during the European sovereign debt crisis? By making BlackRock a sci-fi before it happens. What would you expect to happen between now and then? Snuffing out any major sell-off in U.S. Treasuries by managing credit spreads between U.S. and European debt. That, he said, would relieve the pressure on BlackRock's balance sheet and that of others. Now then, let's talk about the blowout in the U.S. credit default swap rates, as well as the massive plunge in the one-month T-bill rate last week, creating an historic spread of over 160 basis points between the one-month and the two-month. Yellen has been ramping up the rhetoric about the U.S. defaulting once the Treasury General account is empty. Meanwhile, Biden and his Davos puppet masters are serious about trying to stop any kind of spending cuts because they want to balloon the U.S. deficit to the moon. Says Luongo, that would be to save the EU. I think they just kind of like the idea, folks, of exploding the whole stinking system. Because let's be honest, they do seem to hate America first. Anyway, BlackRock is more heavily exposed to Europe than the U.S. pension system, but still heavily exposed to both. What did Lagarde at the ECB put in place last July? Something called the TPI, the Transmission Protection Instrument, designed to protect credit spreads within the EU, at least nominally, but also internationally. What's been happening, though, during this major rally in the euro, up to a buck ten, and Powell convincing the markets he's serious about not pivoting, a collapse of U.S.-European credit spreads indicating preferential capital treatment into the U.S. and out of Europe. In short, he says, I think BlackRock's deteriorating balance sheet, as well as Yellen's intention to stiff U.S. bondholders, is setting us up for what he calls the biggest Lucy with the football moment in U.S. history. It's the biggest threat to Powell's higher for longer rate policy, as well as the future of the U.S. And it all comes down to playing hardball over the debt ceiling without significant spending cuts. Now, that is vital, and that really is the key to this whole thing, folks. It comes down, he says, to playing hardball hardball over the debt ceiling without any significant spending cuts. If that happens, then Yellen is winning and Powell has been checkmated. If McCarthy and the GOP hold the line, then U.S. banking interests will tear BlackRock apart and take their business into bankruptcy. And then they'll take it from them in bankruptcy. And here Tom Luongo turns to Jim Rickard's analysis, because if they make BlackRock a sci-fi, it short-circuits all of this completely and then puts the onus directly on, guess who? The U.S. taxpayer. I can easily see BlackRock, he says, sacrifice on the altar of the Great Reset. Once its control over corporate interests has been turned over to the Treasury and the ECB. In fact, it may be the best play for them to nationalize all the assets that they have. Nine trillion dollars in assets under management is a lot of win for the communists. And Fink, as I've already said, he notes, already has his seat at the high table. Which, notes Tom Luongo in conclusion, is why Tucker Carlson's firing is important, but really, it's just a sideshow in all of this. You got it. The big story, folks, is much bigger still. 